podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being. Being well. Some of the topics are addiction, fear, faith, self-compassion, relationships, codependency, emotional intelligence, and more. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. day, millions of people face traumatic changes to their health. When everything familiar turns upside down, what if they could take better control of their situation by writing about their experience and communicating more effectively by expressing their feelings? What if their struggles became a source of empowerment and inspiration? Research indicates that expressive writing, dealing with one's deepest thoughts and feelings, may contribute to improved physical and emotional health. For those with cancer and or chronic disease, everyone, patients, caregivers, and medical staff has a story to tell. Many are uplifting, while others may not be easy to digest. Through their authenticity, they reflect the staggering realities of dealing with chronic diseases. By opening your heart and giving writing a chance, you can discover the gift of personal expression for you and everyone you know. Welcome to Write for Life, David Tabatsky. In this episode, David Tabatsky talks change, resilience, emotions, writing for healing, and other thoughts in between. David is a writer, editor, teacher, and performing artist based in New York City. His memoir, American Misfit, was released in November 2017. He has coached co-written and edited several inspirational memoirs of people surviving cancer, stroke, abuse, and conversion therapy, as well as numerous self-help guides. David is the co-author of several books about cancer, including Prescription for Hope, Reimagining Women's Cancers, and Reimagining Men's Cancers, HCI 2016, The Cancer Book, 101, Stories of Courage, Support, and Love, Chicken Soup for the Soul, 2009, and the author of Write for Life, Communicating Your Way Through Cancer. David has worked professionally in theater and circus as an actor, clown, and juggler at New York City's Lincoln Center, 
Radio City Music Hall, and the Beacon Theater, and throughout the United States and Europe. Most notably at the Chameleon in Berlin, Nuen Theater in London, Foiles Bigard in Paris, and the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, where the stage wrote, He is a supremely skillful performer and fine actor, reaching levels no other comics have matched at this fringe. David wrote and directed Kinder Circus to Borka at the renowned Tempodrome in Berlin. To read David's full biography, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. Here is the interview with David Tabatsky. In your own words, who is David Tabatsky? Oh, my gosh. All right. Do you have like three or four hours or <laughs> yeah. gonna run like a piece of Robert Wilson theater that takes like 24 <laughs> hours? Uh, I hope you're in a comfortable position because I don't I'm not watching the clock. I'll answer your question. Uh, it really kind of that's a good one. But it really depends on any given day and any different time. I think um, how I identify myself is fluid. Um, mm. And I find that that's actually a fundamental thing in my work as well when i work with people and do workshops either in small groups or big big you know speaking for hundreds or thousands of people a lot of the stuff i do in the beginning is really about identity and um because that has so much to do with how we bounce out into the world is how we first see ourselves so like what you know if you just make it analogous to an airplane taking off to go from one destination to another um you know what you're getting into, you know what kind of a plane it is, you know the seating arrangements and all the other things. And um, sort of like what what vehicle am I putting myself in? Where, where, where am I funneling that identity in when I go out into the world? And so for me, because I do a lot of work uh, in these last years, you know, through the writing work that I'm doing, I, could, I sometimes spend so many hours doing that work and recovering from it or restoring myself to do more or, you, you know, reacting to it. Cause a lot of it is very, very emotional, um, that my identity is a little different in that place than when I'm out in the world or even right now, when I'm talking to you, um, there's a different, different voice or when I'm interacting with my children that changes. And it's also changed over the years as they go from little ones to big ones. Uh, so I think, I think identity is a really fluid thing really avoid your yeah. question but i don't to begin because it you know i like to think that over the years I, I i expand as a person and so my identity also changes and expands but i guess at the core that's the hardest thing is like how do you answer that question at its very core like in the 25 words or less thing i i uh i don't give that too much thought i don't try to f figure that out really because I've never found that it takes me to a a place that I need to get to. I guess I maybe that helps because maybe somehow I feel at home with who I am without without labeling it. I like that. You don't have this fixed idea of who you are. That is interesting. You didn't say anything about your profession. You just uh, kind of in the way you are just life <laughs> and you you're just flowing with life. Wonderful. Yeah, you know, I'll give you an example. Like when I when I work in the cancer community and I have a room full of patients, 
caregivers, survivors, maybe some medical professionals, doctors and nurses and things all mixed in together. And we talk about what happens in the moment that someone is diagnosed with cancer, how that suddenly seems to throw their identity in question, right? I, up until this moment, I was a mother, I was a lawyer, but then as soon as the doctor said, I'm sorry to tell you, you have cancer, suddenly those two things didn't change. You're still a mother, you're still a lawyer, you're still you know, someone who goes to this church or volunteers at this place or, or coaches little league girls baseball or whatever this woman is, you're still all of those things. So the whole point is now on top of it, you're taking on another layer. It's like you're putting on another layer of clothes. Now you're going to be a cancer patient with all of those other things, but that's not going to replace all of those other things. That's what happens for a lot of people that them becoming uh, diagnosed, then for some, if they don't have real security in who they are otherwise and what their roles are in life, that that can erase all of them or that can put them all under threat. And that's what I try to help people navigate through, for example. And that can happen with a lot of things. For example, I think a lot of people now in, the, in this time, um, because of all the political strife and the all so much hatred and negativity and all the different isms that are coming out of the closet and rearing their ugly heads. People are trying to figure out what their identities are in relation to that. So it's, it's not all about sickness or disease. It can be, you know, it's about a lot of different things. So true, David. And that is the topic of our conversation today. Um, but before we talk about how to communicate our way through cancer and chronic disease, I have a few questions for you, warm-up questions. Um, how did you become a writer? Oh, wow. Uh, I think I started writing even in high school when I started to do some theater on my own um, outside of uh, school because I was really just interested in doing it. But there was nothing that – there was no structure for what I thought I wanted to do within the normal public high school. So I kind of started to create things on my own. I had a really great friend who – wrote a play that I did when I was a junior or senior in high school. And he showed me that you can just write stuff. Just if you want to tell a story, make it up. Um, and that was outside the realm of English class where you had an assignment to, you know, what did you do on the weekend? And you have to write about it kind of a thing. <laughs> or an essay about what do you think about, you know, world peace, you know, that kind of thing. But it has to, you know, a certain amount of words and you have to write it. Your penmanship has to be good and you have to hand it in and you get a grade. That was all in the realm of school and academics to do it in a freestyle way. Um, that, which, that also then continued into high school when I started to work as an actor and, and learning, going through all those fundamentals with, you know, traditional things and more, a lot of experimental theater at the time was really, really big. And that movement was really surging in the United States when I went to college. And so that was a way of storytelling. So some of it was written down. I mean, you write down certain things, for example, when you're working on a movement piece, even a dance piece, you're not, you're not writing in a traditional sense, but you're notating. There's a whole, there's a whole way to note movement, you know, um, and to annotate it on the page because you, you, you have to, otherwise it's, you can't all stay in your head. So 
that's the origination of storytelling for me were through those lenses through through theater using the skill sets of theater and then for me also i got into using a lot of circus arts and variety arts and things like that so those are my tools for telling stories and so that's where i started to write um through all those and the way i had to notate what they were um and that just carried on from there into a lot of different forms Um, and today you help people through writing which is a wonderful thing what motivates you to um to be a good person, to do good in the world? Well, I grew up in a Jewish household. My parents were both religious, not orthodox, not, not, not extreme um, in that way. I mean, it's all relative. <laughs> <laughs> I felt like it was extreme sometimes, but it was, you know, my father was a clergy. He was a cantor in the conservative movement of uh, Judaism. So he's somewhere in the middle. He wasn't Orthodox. He wasn't Reformed. So he's kind of a, a moderate clergy, if you will, uh, if you put it in political terms, you know, on that scale. Um, but I learned from an early age this concept um, in the Jewish religion. It's called uh, tikkun olam. And it translates really to repairing the world. It's really the Jewish version of trying to make the world a better place. Um, you know, the Christian faith has their way of doing it. The Islamic faith has a, has a similar vocabulary to it. They're all kind of the idea that you, you need to see the world beyond your own, you know, myopic vision. <laughs> see that there are other people there who, who don't have what you have or somebody needs help. or it's And you it has to be intentional, though. It doesn't happen without intention. And so I learned that from an early age, and I saw my parents do it even when I would remember my parents didn't have very much money but they would contribute a dollar or three dollars or five dollars to various different organizations and I remember helping like I'd put the stamps on the envelopes because that was back obviously sent you know not making online contributions Um, you're doing it you know with physical things and it was a physical thing you had to write out I'd watch my father write out the check or my mother and then I put you put the stamps on. You put the return address label, and you know you have to take them and put them in the mailbox. And and so there's a f- actual for a child. There's there's a physicality even to it because that's how you you relate to it as far as what's physical. You know what's what's tangible. And I would ask questions about it, and I realized as I got older, they would tell me, "Hey, you know what? If we just give five dollars." But there's 10 other people in our neighborhood who are giving $5 each. And then in the neighborhood around the corner and then across the, across the highway and in the next town, the next town, the next town. And I started to figure out, okay, you just multiply that around the whole United States. It's not just one person giving a dollar or $5. Suddenly it's, you know, it's the whole penny thing. You know, you save your pennies and suddenly there's a lot. And you see how like children who have penny drives in school and you think, oh, on the one hand, it's really cute. And then you realize it's not that it's more than cute. They just raised like thousand dollars. These little kids, they just came up with seven thousand dollars worth of pennies. Um, and they're going to feed people. They're going to feed children who live in their same town who aren't fortunate like they are. And they, 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 they go to school hungry. Now there's food for them. So that was really imprinted in me early on um, as a child. And so I feel like now. 
as I've gotten older and I become, you know, uh, supposedly a responsible adult, <laughs> uh, that that I can I I need to to carry that on. I've done I now did that all through raising my own children, uh, and it really feeds my work on, on a psychological way. That is really what motivates me. Not every single project, in all honesty, that I do has that merit. Sometimes I have I have to take jobs that aren't necessarily have social redeeming value. They might be a little bit more commercial, but they also give me the money sometimes to invest into my into my cancer community work where I need where I can like put do stuff for free because I have money from another project. So it's all related in a way. It's not vacations. I wish I would, you know, allow myself to take vacations. I kind of need one, but um, it's just not in my kind of not in my DNA. Um, and, uh, but that, that's what drives me is, is that concept of tikkun alum, which I don't walk, I don't, I'm just identifying that for you by these words, because I think it has importance, but it's not, I don't think of it in those words exactly every day, but that is a mission that does drive me every day in, in, in my work. Um, because it's not always easy. It's, it's a draining, emotionally, it can be really tough. Um, yeah, so I, I, but, but it's not hard to come back to that intention at some point every day or night. I like that, David. I like that a lot. Uh, with that in mind, what do you think is the world's greatest need? Wow. Is this like, like your, your big day, your question, like, <laughs> like when you say this is national big day question. Uh, okay. Uh, yeah, really? Can ask you a little, no, no low hanging fruit here with you. Okay, uh, right. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's the simple stuff. I think that we we forget just really basic things: kindness and common sense. Bam, it's done. Mm-hmm. If we just kind of, if we could just dictate our lives through through the lens of kindness and common sense. Um, yeah, I think um, that would do a lot of. Good. <laughs> I agree. You could really move the needle in big ways. I mean, I I support the idea when we say in certain situations we do need radical change, whether it's in the structure of our economy or it's in you know our priorities of where we where the government puts money. Like if we could just put the same amount of money we put into a new fighter airplane, if we could just put that into uh, you know um, Alzheimer's research, that would be money better spent. Sure, but. Um, you also have to be re- realistic, and so you can yell and you can yell and scream and jump up and down, and, you know, for that to happen. But there's a lot of reasons why it doesn't. So you got to you have to go for sometimes for the low hanging fruit and fix those. For example, it, it sounds kind of silly, but why not just pay attention in the moment that you are? So if you're walking down the street and somebody falls down, well, help them up, <laughs> you know. Because how many times do we just keep walking, you know, or we see, or, or you know, that's metaphorical, you know, or literal. Um, just there's so many places where there's so many things just in the normal life that we can we can take care of that are going to help things along the way without getting into the big, complicated, uh, heavy lifting. Just there's so many obvious things that we could do that w- would help the world to be 
more peaceful. I agree. So true. Do you believe in God? And if you do, who and where is God? Wow, 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 wow. Um, I'd say that it's not a question of belief. I think it's, for me, I don't think it's always a belief thing. Um, Mm -hmm. Because then, it's also like how you define belief. Because I think for a lot of people, they kind of determine whether they believe in God based on a transactional approach. Like if I believe in God, I'm going to pray that I'm going to get something back for it. And I think that that gets messed up because if you take it through a transactional lens, then you're kind of left on the short end of the stick, either understanding or being left, feel like you're being, you know, God's not hearing your prayers or, you know, uh, all, all that stuff. So I don't, I think I believe in in that there that, that there's a spiritual energy in the world that that I mean you could just say like here I am I'm talking to you and you and I are making a connection and that's done through email and other ways that we met each other but on the other hand there is a spiritual connection like why you why are you why did you pick me or why am I actually responding to you as opposed to somebody else, you know, another fit. So there's some spiritual energy maybe that's bringing you and me together in this way, but that's not, I don't feel like that's not whether you believe in God or I believe in God. And when I think about, I mean, I remember, I mean, I grew, so again, I grew up in this Jewish tradition. So I was, I was introduced to the Holocaust at an early age when I saw an elderly person standing in the synagogue with these numbers on their arm. And I asked my parents, you know, why do they have numbers on their arm? I mean, it's a pretty normal question. Well, it's not, it's not a normal thing. You know, you don't, we didn't grow up on a cow farm, you know, where all the cows are branded with numbers or something. Why does this human being have a, have numbers on their arm? You know? Um, Cause they weren't, it wasn't like there were, everybody did. I didn't, you know, so and then I, you know, then I got older, you learn more and more about this and you're going, well, how can there be a God if all these millions of people are getting killed for no good reason? You know, that doesn't, or like, and then you learn more about history and you go, why, if there's a God, why, wow, this God has a really warped, dark sense of humor. He just lets people murder each other. Um, why, why is that? Or why are all these millions of people? Why, for example, there's no God in New York City. How can there be if there's one in five children go to school hungry, go to go to bed hungry in New York City, in one of the most affluent cities in the whole world? So what? So God's either lazy or has a really warped sense of humor or or is just nasty. Uh, It doesn't add up. It's not any. So I thought years and years ago, I stopped doing that equation because it got me nowhere. It just left me frustrated and and angry. And so I thought, you know what, I'm not going to my world isn't going to be defined about whether I believe in God or not. Absolutely. It's not a binary choice to me. Some days I feel like I do. And some days I still believe somewhere in a distant place in my mind, I still believe in that kind of Santa Claus image that, you know, the older guy with the big gray hair and flowing beard, that's God, you know, and be, you know, fear of God kind of thing. And I still, I still, you know, there's still, that never leaves you because it's imprinted from childhood. So there's a tiny bit of that still there, but I can't make it a binary choice because I think we put ourselves in, in a corner um, if we do that. It makes sense to me. 
do you believe in God? Yeah. I, mean, I ask you that question. Do you have a yes or no? Do you have a yes or no in that? I think it's just a word. Um, I don't know if we can really define. It seems like we are trying to define something that cannot be expressed with words. Maybe love is the closest, um, I think. Unconditional love, I would say, is the closest thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That would be more sense. I think a lot of times what happens is people make you answer that question, and then it's a question of, well, are you going to be a member of the club or not? <laughs> yeah, right. So you're not. Like, are you going to come to church or, or the mosque? Or you're in it or you're not? And that's sort of like, are you in this Democratic Party or you're in the Republican Party or or you know do you do you agree with this policy or again it's why is everything a binary absolute choice like it, it life is a lot more complicated than that yeah um, <laughs> yeah unconditional love I would say yeah first for ourselves and then passing that on to others in life itself well I would I would I would vote for that. For the most part, but then I'm saying some people, you know what? I, I, some people behave so badly that I'm not really sure my love is unconditional for that person. To be really honest, I'm going, you know, I'm going to give you an open mind, but I'm not sure. It's not 100 because you know you're doing too much damage. Um, yeah. So anyway, do you love yourself unconditionally? No. No, I have to put some conditions on because that's related also to discipline and, mm -hmm. and intention. Like, so there's certain things I have to be willing to say, Meh, I don't love so much how I responded to that person. Or, I don't, you know, I don't, I, you, know you, you were lazy. You're, no, I don't love what you just, that choice you just made. You know, or no, you shouldn't have, you know, like just been, been kind of given a cold shoulder to the waiter in the restaurant the other day because you were, you know, whatever, just like, so I know it's not like unconditional love, but it's, um, it's, so there's a certain, I have to, I have to earn it. Um, so that's how I try to hold myself accountable. Um, then I'm like, oh yeah, unconditional love. Yeah. You got it all. <laughs> if I earn it, I need to <laughs> earn it. That's cute. Um, maybe you're just, um, sort of judging the, uh, the behavior, the actions, not really who you are. We behave in different ways, depending, like you said, different situations, the identity will change. Well, yeah, yeah, on that level there, yeah, you're right. Then, yeah, on a deep, in, deeper, deeper, just in that like existence level. Yeah. There, one would hope that more people would have that unconditional love because I think a lot of people behave badly because they don't love themselves and they don't, even, they don't even like themselves. So they, they, they lash out at everybody else just because they don't like who they are. Um, and I wish we could, that's a good place to, for healing. A lot of people, if we could just fix that fundamental thing, ooh la la, that would be nice. <laughs> yeah, I would say so. Yeah. Um, my last warm up question for you, David, What do you think is your purpose in this life? Well, there's some version of, I, I, this, I'll just keep it clean because might, might, there might be children listening to this or down the road. It's, it's really to, to question the status quo, to, to mess with it, to play with it, uh, to stretch it, to bend it, to not just make assumptions and that doesn't mean like to say well 
uh, that's an arbitrary choice. Somebody put a red light on the street. It doesn't mean red to me. I'm going to drive through it. Of course, I don't mean that, you know, because they, you have to cooperate with, with a, you know, a, with a group, you know, a group setting here. We have to live in the world with other people. You don't get to make all the rules. So a certain amount of status quo, like traffic lights, um, need to be respected, um, at least, you know, most of the time. <laughs> uh, so, uh, and and so okay that that I'm not trying I'm not I'm not trying to be an anarchist in that in that regard but I feel like there has to be a certain amount of personal anarchy and interactive anarchy with other people because that's what that's what really makes connections that's where really you you connect with someone so you're not just saying oh this person's really beautiful like they're, they're, they're this woman looks so beautiful I just want to tell her that she's beautiful uh, what does that that's 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 nice that's cosmetic but what is it what is it where does it really take you um so you kind of up, upset the status quo and kind of come in through a, a side door or a back door and figure out how do i get to know who this person is that's just a very superficial example the other thing is uh, systemically like to not just to say someone is being a racist or an anti-semite but why what system, what, 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 what's questioned the system of why that they even got to behave that way, you know? And so those are the things that I try to do also in my work to a certain point. It has to drive to make storytelling something that people will connect with. So you, you and sometimes that's, that's done in a lot of different ways. Then you get into questions of craft, but at its heart, I think what's driven me I realize now in reflection, there's been this constant thing. It's, it's really is about questioning the status quo. Um, you know, like for example, with religion, I grew up with this idea, like you're supposed to do this and you're supposed to do that. And there's all these laws, follow this law, do this, don't do that. And then at a certain point you go, why, who decided, who really decided that all of this is what makes you a good Jew or a bad Jew or a good citizen or bad. It's like, Really? What? Yeah. <laughs> so, okay. Sorry, I might take a little long time to answer that question. No, that's that's absolutely fine. Um, yeah, it's a big question. Yeah. Um, let's talk about the book you wrote, "Write for Life." So, my first question is, why did you write that book titled "Write for Life"? Well, "Write for Life," communicating your way through cancer, which was the first edition of the book, and then. Just this past year, Right for Life, Communicating Your Way Through Cancer and Chronic Disease, which is kind of a logical extension of it. So all the same principles that are in there, or, or 90 plus percent of them, apply not only to cancer, but to people who are challenged by dealing with other chronic illnesses um, that have side effects and that have short-term uh, issues and long-term issues, um, both physically, emotionally, and psychologically. Uh, and so, um, I think about 10 years ago, it is already almost 10 years ago, I started to do, um, workshops. I did this book called, um, the cancer book, 101 stories of courage, support, and love. And this was published by chicken soup for the soul publishing, which is a pretty big brand of, stuff. they do a lot of different books. So this is a book I put together for them only on, you know, cancer related stuff, um, aptly called the cancer book. And, um, so I started then when that book came out, I was asked 
um, to put together workshops that could be done in cancer centers. Um, and I found in these cancer centers, I was traveling around the country doing these. And there was one woman in particular up in Boston at Harvard University at the Beth Deaconess Hospital um, there that's connected with Harvard, um, Hester Hill Schnipper. That was an incredible w- w- woman. She ran a lot of oncology services up there, and patient services were, were one of one of her domains. Um, and her husband was the chief surgeon in, in, in you know for that whole you know hospital. And she said, "I'd been up there a couple times." And then she said, "David." Some people can't come to your workshops. You got to put a book out or something that I can give to these people, so they don't. It's not they lose out. They don't if, even if they can't be there, or or you know, new people come in. What about the people who get diagnosed next week and and you're not going to be here? And so she was really the incentive uh, for me to do this book, and I'm forever grateful to her for for doing it, uh, for for pushing me. And it wasn't really hard to do. It was really a a labor of love and, 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 uh, and really let me put my own stamp on a personal way, just my own idiosyncrasies and things. Some of the things that we're talking about today, that there were no rules sort of, I had to find a way to structure this book. And once I figured out a way that I could structure it, I could pretty much kind of go anywhere and use different parts of who I am and, and what, what I feel and, and what my energies are and bring that into a book where people can, take it and use it and make it their own and and stretch it and bend it and you know and own it for themselves um and make make it useful uh for them and whoever is in their immediate circle so that's how that um that's how that started so why cancer do you have any personal experience with cancer or chronic disease i myself have been really lucky that i haven't had um any Um, physical diseases of my own I, I'm not a cancer survivor um, my father um, had cancer and um, he passed away in a long time ago um, it's in 1987 and from leukemia and back then there were no patient services there were no um, patient caretaker family services there was nothing you know the doctor said you know the doctor said this and you said okay doctor knows i don't you know mm-hmm. and then and what are you going to do go to the library and read an 800 page medical book that you can't understand most of it to find out what they're talking about there was no on, there was you couldn't there were no you know there was no you know like online world that existed to do research um it was also a bit of a a taboo a bit of a stigma just the mm-hmm. same way like back then if there was a family in the neighborhood going through the divorce, it was really kind of hush, hush. Don't talk about divorce. Ooh, that person has cancer. Don't talk about it. Cause you might catch it. If you do, you know, almost, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of people were living in the closet, um, for a lot of different reasons. Um, and it, it wasn't just about whether it, it was, you know, divorce and, and disease were, were, were big. It wasn't just about, you know, people who were gay or something having to, you know, repress their, their their lives because people wouldn't accept it you know divorce wasn't very acceptable and and cancer was sort of don't talk about it because it might creep into our life too or it's like a pariah kind of a thing mm-hmm. and um so for years i felt i didn't realize it until i did this book and then the things after 
that wasn't, I, I didn't get into this stuff because of my father, but I realized once I started to do it, that it made sense because there were so many unanswered questions. There was that this kind of uncomfortable, unsatisfied thing that had been inside me for years and years that was pretty frustrating. But I had done a lot of work through the clowning that I did for so long that I got gigs and would, would do like I was work doing like clowning in hospitals and in, and in, and in old folks homes and senior centers and psychiatric uh, uh, units and hospitals and prisons and working with mental health clinics. And I got sent into like places where they didn't know what else to put in there. So they'd send me, you know, Always had because it was not, it was pretty flexible. You like when you're clowning and you have a pretty if you have a good toolkit of skills, physical skills, and you have an open heart, then you can pretty much go into any area and connect with people and 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 bring a smile to them and 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 some relief and all that. So um, that work I think really informed a lot of this work that I'm doing with cancer too. It doesn't really there's not like a very obvious equation there but if you look a little deeper you're going oh yeah it's a very obvious connection um all the ingredients overlap beautifully uh at least from how i see it and how i how i come to it it feels quite natural so um those are all things that in, that inform not only the work i'm doing in the cancer community but for example now i'm working on this book just finishing this book up um called a mother's grace um healing the world one woman at a time. And it's a profile of 10 different women around the country who have taken personal trauma and tragedy and turned it into a positive mission. For example, they, they, I, I'm working now, I'm finishing a story. Literally, I'm still working on this story before we got on the phone today. This of a woman who lost her daughter in the um, Parkland high school shooting in Florida a couple years ago. And um, and she then created this incredible nonprofit to f to figure out gun safety in schools, make our schools safe, for children. And um, so she's taken this terrible, unthinkable personal loss and transformed it into a positive thing for lots of people. And there's other stories like that in the book. So for me. This is a very, very synergistic connection with all the other work that I do. Uh, and so it just makes perfect sense because um, it, it's, it's taking storytelling and using storytelling as a positive force. Yes, yeah. Inspirational message. How can we overcome just natural events, right, in life? Yeah, and one story. One story is a woman who, who was wiped out in Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans years ago, who now her nonprofit is huge. She's restoring, you know, almost like street by house by house, family by family, street by street, restoring New Orleans. Um, that, that came from her own personal experience. It's remarkable. Uh, yeah. yeah. Going back to writing, um, what makes writing a healing tool? In your opinion, well, I see it on two levels. If you break it down, one of them is the common sense approach. It's very pragmatic. 
And the other one gets into more deeply emotional, carefree things. For example, when I do a workshop and I could ask people, um, when you go to the doctor, let's just say you've just been diagnosed. So you're, you got the blood test back or the CAT scan or whatever it is that confirms your pathology that you have this disease in your body. And now you're going to the doctor to figure out a game plan for how you're going to handle it. Right. Do you, and so you're going to have a, a short, relatively short amount of time because your oncologist is, has a limited amount of time to see you. So mm-hmm. how many people here, you know, I'm so, oh, I don't even ask how many of so it's like, so you're all write down your questions and everything. Right. And I'm playing, I, I do this intentionally to set them up. Mm-hmm. I see you're, you're everybody got to write down your, your questions. Just, you know, uh, Oh, and then I stop because I look at, I see some blank faces and I go, Oh, wait a second. I'm mm-hmm. sorry. Maybe I shouldn't have taken this for granted. So some I look at a person, I say, you're not writing down your questions about what you want to ask your doctor. So, okay, let me just get this straight. You've just been diagnosed with cancer. Your head is exploding from this news, right? You're you're having probably some pretty bad sleepless nights because you're afraid. Fear has invaded, and fear doesn't let go very easily. So you got fear, right? And fear of the unknown and you're just going to walk into your doctor's office tomorrow and remember everything you want to ask. You are the most amazing person I have ever met in my life. You are Kate. You're, you're super human. Cause I don't know. I've never met anyone who can do that. And so I take it. I've been a little sarcastic and playful because you want, you want to have, if you, if you can allow people to laugh at themselves a little bit in the beginning, it's an invitation to kind of really make something useful out of this. So, so I try to create that environment. And so I say, okay, forget about writing with your English teacher leaning over you and telling you all the things you get wrong and you have bad grammar and blah, 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 blah. Or, or oh my God, I don't have writer's block, which is a bunch of blah, blah, blah. It, just write down 10 questions you need to ask your doctor and then read those questions out loud to your husband or your wife or your mother or your sister, whoever's going to accompany you to the doctor and say, does this sound like me? Is this really me? Am I asking a question that I think I should ask because it sounds good? And and I read that online or is it a question I need to know for me? And so check that stuff, go into the doctor and be prepared and bring a tape recorder. And, and so a lot of that, so then you can write down, you listen back and write down the things that are important to you. That's where writing is just a pragmatic tool. It's just it's it's just you need to because your your head's too full of all this other noise. So you you need to distill it. You need to filter through and write down what's important. And then, for example, how do you communicate this to your family? This news. How do you tell your children that you're just diagnosed with cancer? How do you tell your husband or your wife? Well. It's just like any actor. An actor doesn't go on stage and know all the lines. They have to work at it. They have to practice them. So just like that, you've never been in this situation before. You've never been in this play. How are you going to tell them? What words are you going to use? Why don't you write them down first? Say them out loud. Is that you? Is that who you want to be when you say it? Are you using the words that really express yourself? Well, then try a different word. Or mix it up a little different. Let's try it like this. And I give them some examples and, you know, things like that. You got to figure out your own Rubik's Cube of communication. Um, And then from there, it goes on to try to figure out fear. 
because it all comes back to fear. At the end of the day, just like we talk about religion, at the end of the day, we can use a million different words, God, yes, God, no. You, you hit it, and you just talked about love. So, so it, 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 the elephant in the room is fear. So I take it straight on. Within the first 20 minutes of a workshop, we're right in it. We're going deep in it because what am I going to do at the, at the end of a whole workshop that you're dancing around to go, oh, by the way, good luck with your fear. Thank you and goodbye. You know, <laughs> you know are you, that's just highly irresponsible, uh, you know, let alone absurd. So I, I try to go deep, dive into it, you know, relatively quickly um, because that's the bear. That's the, that's the mountain to climb. That's, that's the, you know, that's Sisyphus, you know, pushing the rock up the hill and it rolls back down. And we, we deal with our fears. They don't just go away. We have to massage them. We have to, we have to love them. We have to hate them. We got to do a lot of different things with them because they're there and they're going to stay um, for quite a while. Um, even survivors who have had a clean bill of health years later, there's still that latent fear that it's going to come back. Um, so we can write away the we you know we can we can write our way through some of that and sometimes it's just saying um not being not, not <laughs> in a way not being afraid to say what you feel what are you hiding it for you know what i mean because what you might not be here next week or next month or next year. That's the reality. That's the damn reality of it. So just get it out. If you want to, you love somebody, tell them you love them now. And if you're afraid, say you're afraid now. What are you? What are you trying to be? What are you trying to be a hero for? You know, for what? So um, yeah. So and that that really varies so much from people person to person and what the environment is and what kind of support system they have. So I need to be careful to find the balance in there. So it might sound a bit extreme if somebody would hear this now, but it's not like I'm literally grabbing people by the shirt collar and shaking them, you know, although some people that would be a good, a good technique, <laughs> but <laughs> that's really what they need. Um, but everybody has to, you have to come to that, you know, um, you know, carefully and, and, and lovingly, but, but at the same time you get in there or you're not doing anything. You can't, you can't dance around the truth. Right. Um, and especially because these things are physically held for the most part, you're in a cancer center, like just take in the environment where you are. You just, it's like, why are we all here? We're all physically here in a cancer center. So you can't pretend that you don't have cancer or you're, or the person you love more than anyone else in the world has cancer. You, you just need to face the truth. Um, and, and it's a lot healthier when people can do it. So that's what I help try to help them do and give them the tools to break it down into small bites and dose it out. Just like we dose out medicine, we have to dose our way sometimes through communication. So you can't just say to somebody, okay, tell me how you feel. That's just way too big. You got to break that down into into doable doable doses. I agree. I think I had three questions on fear, 
And one of which is, what is real about our fears and what's not real? Well, I guess my first answer would be some of those, some of the fears we're, we're conditioned to fear. You know, it, it, if you break it down, even there's this, I just made, you made me think of this TV commercial and it's so silly. It's just for like a, like a, a chewing gum or some sort of breath freshener. There's an old guy, older guy sitting with a young boy. He's an adolescent. He's like 14. The, the boy's 14 and they're in a park and they're playing chess and across, right across the, the way they're very close by are three young girls, the same age as the boy, give or take. And they're just sitting there. And the boy, he's playing, trying to play chess, but he's sort of looking over at the girls because he's, he's, he's interested, you know? Uh, and I think he, he kind of looks like he knows them. Like he know they know, he knows who they are from school or something. They're not total strangers, you know, or might not, you know, wouldn't. So, and the, the older, the older guy, he plays, makes a move on the chess thing. And then he, he looks at him and it's like, don't keep trying to play chess here don't, and, and don't be, don't here. And he slides him over the product that they're selling, which is some, you know, f- freshening gum or whatever it is, you know, chewing gum. That's not, that's good for your breath. So, you know, you got, so it's like the older guy saying to the younger one, Hey, listen, the first thing you got to do, you're going to go try and, 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 you know, chat up these girls. You got to have good, you know, you have to have bad breath. You can have bad breath or you'll never get anywhere. Forget it. Don't break it right there. You know? So, you know, you could be the cutest kid in the world, but if you got bad breath, you know, you're done. You know, you're toast for the day. So he slides over the thing. The kid take, puts it in his mouth, goes over, and then the camera pans over, and you see them starting to, you know, smile and have fun, and then the product comes up, and the commercial's over. But in that moment, um, there, it's, it's like the kid is afraid. The boy is naturally shy. I really want to talk to these girls you know, um, but I'm shy. And so the guy gives him the, he gives him the tool. He gives him, it's like, if you chew this gum and you know, you have good breath, then you, you're already halfway there. Right. Um, and so, uh, that's when you asked that question, it made me think of that commercial right away because that's boiling it down. That's like such a simple thing, but it's a basic fundamental. It's, it's so, when we talk about fear, um, we have to look at it from the basic thing. What are we? What are you actually afraid of? Are you afraid of dying? Because that's a big, that's a big, big thing. Are you afraid of of the physical pain that you're now going to have to go through as a side effect of the chemotherapy or surgery or radiation that you are facing? That's a valid fear if you've never encountered that before. Um, I know so. I know so many patients. Sometimes they tell me it wasn't the physical pain. I know that's going to suck, but I've been through. Like I was an athlete for years, and I know I've had broken bones, or I've had knee surgeries, or I know what it's like, and I know what it's like also to get to have to take pain drugs. And I, you know, that's not what I'm worried about. I'm not worried about the physical thing. I'm afraid that I won't be able to parent my children, or I'm afraid if I die. I'm not afraid of the death part for me and my God and all those things. I'm afraid that my children are going to have to grow up without a mother or a father. So, so then when we identify that what they are, so they're not, it's not just this blind fear. So sometimes what we do, even by writing them down, when you put something on a piece of paper, you can take ownership of it. 
You see it in your own handwriting, your own physical handwriting. That's why I really try to stress that. And we do that. We have notebooks and stuff where I ask people, I'm not asking you to put your phone away because I don't want you to, I want you to be here only and not communicate with the outside world. Any of you who are parents, I understand. Keep your phone there because if your kid texts you, they don't know that you're in this workshop, text them back. So then you have a clear mind and you can focus. That's fine. I don't mind the phones being there. But don't use the phone to jot the notes down because that's an, that's an, that's anonymous. You know, whether no matter what font you use, it's not your handwriting. It won't own it. You know, it just looks like, oh, I like that font. Oh, I like that font. But, you know, it's not you. Somebody else made that font. Um, so write in your own handwriting and and take the write it slow enough that you can read your own writing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Own it. It's you. It's the way you physically express yourself ever since you're a child and where your handwriting has evolved to. Um, and, and that, I think that has a lot of value. It sounds superficial, but I, but, but especially nowadays where we spend so much time on keyboards, um, whether they're on our phone or an iPad or a computer, whatever it is, it's all, it's like, like little fingertip, fingertip. It's and the physiological thing that happens when you write by hand. And then I said, for example, when we want to, so so if you write down your fears, for example, just an exercise to write down five things you're afraid of, just one word, just write the write them down as one word each. When you see them on paper, they suddenly become tangible or heading that way, and then if they can become somewhat tangible, then they can also become somewhat manageable. Not a hundred percent, I mean, because God, you know, we're not working miracles here but um they become somewhat manageable and they 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 and then when that happens someone's able to breathe and when we breathe we have we have a potential for health because we need good breath you know thing. yeah i like that this way of um, dealing with fears and you mentioned tools like the commercial and then in this case it might be accessing common sense, just trying to understand what is that we are afraid of. And perhaps going back to what you said in the very beginning about what, what is the world's greatest need, and you said kindness, that it might be part of being being kind to ourselves. Be kind to yourself. Hello. <laughs> yeah. That's exactly it. Kind to yourself by doing some of this actually simple work. It's not mm -hmm. that hard when you do it. Most of the time, people in these situations, the fear sets off a soundtrack of noise and how do you quiet the noise or how do you how do you bend it a little bit into a soundtrack that you can lift oh that's got a beat and i could dance to it <laughs> you know i mean in a way it really it kind of is that uh because mm -hmm. it, the noise you have to admit the noise is going to be there there's still reason there's going to be reason for a long time to have no for that noise is going to be there uh so It's, it's, it's how do you manage it? How do you break it down into bite-sized stuff that you can, you can handle and you can not completely, no one can completely control that, but it's manageable. You got to make it, you know, make it manageable. I found this line in your book. There's a funny thing about being sick. What is the funny thing about being sick? Well, I'll tell you a little story. Uh, in the cancer book that I did, um, without mentioning 
names. One, the one woman, I don't remember particularly what cancer she had, but she, she was in treatment. She'd been in treatment for a while, but she was able to still work, you know, um, or she'd been back to work, whatever. So she, she did a normal day of work, an office job of some kind. And then, um, she went to the cancer center to have a chemo treatment. Um, not a long one. This is like a, you know, an infusion that wasn't, you know, wasn't terribly long. Um, and then she was driving home. She said, you know, I, I got to take care of my car. So she stopped in to wash her car. Um, just to, you know, which is again, an easy low hanging fruit, like keep your life normal. Like normally you wash your car every so often, you know, you, you know, you, you, you do things like that. So keep the normal stuff as normal as you can. Um, so she, she, uh, washed her car and then she pulled over to do the vacuuming of the inside of the car and mm. she was getting tired. It was, you know, it was early evening. It'd been a long you know day of work and then the treatment and, you know, um, so she was tired. She's trying to climb, she like vacuumed the back seat. Then she's trying to climb over into the front seat of the car. So she managed to like get one leg over and she's straddling this other, other, you know, leg to get over. And, you know, the big hose with the vacuum cleaner just kind of slipped out of her hand and hit her in the head, not hit her, but just went up against her head and sucked off the wig that she was wearing because she lost her hair for the most part at that point. The wig was gone because, you know, these big vacuum cleaners, they're huge, the big opening. And it's gone like the vac, like it wasn't stuck in the hose. It was sucked. She's there. She's sitting. She's like got one leg you know, straddling the, the, the seat, you know, from the front to the back. And, and she's and, and this big hose, you know, banging into her and, and then the top of the car. So she's sandwiched in and she's and she's got a bald head. And then she looks, she, she turns and she looks out the, the, the window and there's this big, rather unappealing looking guy standing there laughing his butt at her. And her first her first inclination is she's she's turned off by it and she's scared. You know, she's not scared. No, I mean, a car's locked or whatever. It's not like, it's not, guys, it doesn't look like he's going to grab her, you know, reach into the car. But she's just turned off by it. But then within seconds, she's ended up laughing like him. He did her this great favor by, by he saw it and it was like a bit of slapstick. You know, and it's sort of like, you know, like a like a skilled physical comedian would have to rehearse that. Yet she did it quite naturally. <laughs> and and uh, she and, and there she is. And he's laughing and then she's laughing and she felt so light. He just helped her lighten the load of what a, what would have been a horror show. You know, she just lost. She's now got to drive home with no hair. Right. And no car or anything. And she's driving. And she felt she said there was something liberating in that that I didn't it was like I and and I thought this is a wonderful story and 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 and, and you know uh, it, there's it's obviously a, a, a funny story about a particular thing that many women in particular have dealt with who are wearing wigs around who you don't know you know you don't know they're wearing a wig necessarily if it's a good wig you know and and it's their coloring and but they're they're uh carrying around a big psychological burden with that wig you know uh, there's a reason for it they never forget the reason and when they get home and they take it off 
that's a whole nother thing. Um, so anyway, I, I try to work with a sense of humor because first of all, it just invites good communication with me and the people who are there to participate and, or observe either one. Um, and, but I, but to help people figure out that humor in themselves. And I think no matter what situation we're in, if we can laugh at ourselves, um, it's only helpful. I've never heard ever in my life. Oh no, that per I just feel like I laugh at myself too much. Somebody says, no, you know what? You laugh at yourself too much. It's, it's not healthy. You should laugh at yourself less. You should find less things in, about you. You know, you take yourself more seriously. You know, I mean, come on. That doesn't, that would, did you ever hear that? Nobody ever, I've never heard anybody say that. Um, so, um, I just think it's, 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 it's a healthy thing. Physiologically, it's actually, it's, I mean, there's, there's a couple of cancer centers around who do laugh therapy, um, which is pretty wonderful. Um, it's the same thing. Like when people don't get, don't get hugged enough or don't, don't embracing enough. Um, it's a lot of that's undervalued. That's really, really undervalued. Um, yeah, I mean, I think every neighborhood should have a hugging center, but it's, you know, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> a hogging center. I like that idea. That's fun. Um, so now we have lots of tools here. Kindness, yeah. be kind to yourself, common sense, and then you added sense of humor. It's incredibly helpful. Well, that's part of, that's part of being kind to yourself, actually. If you let yourself laugh at yourself, that's self-kindness. That's, that's being kind to yourself. Yeah. You wrote something interesting that caught my attention in your book. What do you mean when you say that life is just a dream? And also, talk to me about the journey to nowhere. Well, one of my dearest friends, who's been gone now uh, way too long uh, from cancer, uh, my friend Bob Lennox, who uh, talked about life as a dream. And I remember vividly when he put it through that lens for me. Um, Bob is American. He's born, raised in Brooklyn, kind of a normal, casual Catholic, whatever, not casual Christian, whatever you, I don't know if you can use that term. And, uh, um, and uh, he, but he was really into, he had been into Buddhism a lot. And um, this really brought him, I think, through that and his work as a musician um, and all the imp improvisational work he'd done as a musician, uh, besides composing so many songs, he, he, this is what his equation was. Life is just a dream. And I think it was his way of making sense of it all. And the fact that he knew he was dying and that he was leaving children in the world and, um, and his wife and, um, all the other people that he cared about and loved. And, um, that it, I, I think it's a way to make sense of it or it's a way to say it's not just me dying like all the people that I love and care about them the fact is that one day they're going to die too and so um this is all our path and enjoy you know just in, enjoy the dream because that's all it is it's very temporary it's really a mm -hmm. transitory thing 
but stop stop hanging on to possessions stop even stop hanging on to to certain feelings so much um and these principles and these values i mean yes he's not advocating don't have values or don't don't be good to people or that all that stuff nothing matters he's he wasn't existential in that way like nothing matters life is just a dream is really much different because he wasn't saying life is just a nightmare you know he could have said that he's not looking at that way um so I think it's just a question that was his vocabulary for finding equilibrium and accept and acceptance. Acceptance. That that's that's not easy picking. You know, that's 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 the big that's the big stuff there. Um, uh, it is, yeah, accepting life, ourselves the way we are and life the way it unfolds, that takes I guess deeper understanding, right? Self knowledge perhaps. Yeah, yeah, and 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 uh, that's all. All that's true, but I think it's also again, like you asked me before about my belief in God and talking about things that are fluid. I think that that's also fluid. I think you know, without without, <laughs> I'm not advocating for all of us to become really moody people. Like being moody is fine because it's all fluid. Oh, it's fine. You know, you could just be moody all the time. No, it's not mood. It's not really about mood. It's about uh, you know, so is uh, not putting ourselves in 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 lanes only like like I'm this or I'm that, and if I'm not all that, what am I? Then I'm nothing. No, you're more than that. So, for example, when I talk to people about a lot of times, you see people when they get diagnosed with any it doesn't have to be cancer, di cancer, diabetes, whatever they view it as. Oh, my life is now shrinking. It's smaller. You know, it's bad. It's all bad. Yeah, no kidding. A diagnosis of any of that stuff is bad. That sucks. It's it's terrible. You wish you didn't have that. You know, you don't, you, you know, but why not also say, I need to expand my life now to accommodate this? And, and as much as I possibly can. Sometimes that's a losing effort. In, in the end, sometimes the disease is going to be bigger, and no matter what, you're, it's going to it's going to have a bad ending, and that's just true sometimes, but mm, always, you know. Um, or what path are you going to take even to that ending? That right. Yeah, in your book, you also talk about gratitude. What would you say are the benefits of gratitude when diagnosed with cancer or any other disease for that sake? Well, I think gratitude is a ticket to taking some attention off of ourselves by sometimes writing down what are we grateful for? You know, you can when you only have it in your head, it's just in your head. When you write it down and you look and you see what it is on a piece of paper, then it becomes more real. Um, then there's an objectivity to it. Um, and I think, you know, for example, imagine if you wrote down on 10 different pieces of paper, the things that are, that you're most grateful for, and you put them down one word, one word, or the name of a person or a thing, or whatever that you're grateful for. And you put it on an index card and you put it on the floor in a circle and you stood in the middle of it. How, how powerful might that be? Um, as a momentary exercise. Um, and, and I think that if we can surround ourselves with gratitude, even in the midst of the worst 
things, there's always something to be grateful for. It's really a lot of it's low hanging fruit. It's not it's not very hard to figure out. Um, but that's why writing them down sort of um, is is a is a stepping stone to also not forgetting them. So you have your list. Some people I know they put that list on the refrigerator and they see it every time they go get something to eat. They re- they're reminded of what they're grateful for. They put it in the bathroom. So when they're in there fussing around with their face in the mirror, they're reminding themselves of what they're grateful for. They're not just putting their attention on all on their own, you know, face. <laughs> right. Yeah. That is uh, such a powerful phrase you just said. There is always something to be grateful for. That's so true. Yeah, like we're all. I think a lot of people right now, not the in our in our circle here, but all over the world, really are are hurting right now. Whether for real reasons or symbolic reasons, since this horrible, uh, this horrible tragic thing this this Sunday of when Kobe Bryant and, the, and his daughter and these seven people were killed in this helicopter, and but I think. You know, I I know this has really hit me pretty hard, and and uh, but I'm we realize like why is it hitting me so hard? And I realize like for so many years that I've that I've known him and watched him and 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 followed his path um, literally and symbolically, and but there's so many great like things to be grateful for in that too, like. Like I've had, there's so many hours of, of pleasure watching him play basketball and seeing who he, who he's become for all his good things and his bad things that he's done in his life to see where, how he's evolved, you know, in, in mostly all positive ways. And, uh, um, so, um, th- there's, you know, you're hurting from that loss. It's like, you know, I still, I still feel an empty space that you know um without my father but i but there's a lot of things that i'm i'm grateful about with my father or i can you know remember i think so i think out of anything we can often find um you know we can find gratitude and i just think it's a even if it's just a, a balancing trick you know even if it's a trick we play in our minds to help us and balance out the things that we're anxious or depressed about or feel negative about uh, in the world. Well, then just for everyone you feel depressed about, just find one that you feel grateful for. And that, that then you have the scales are more, more in balance. Uh, and you can kind of walk forward with a little bit of a lighter yeah. step. Thank you so much, David, uh, for your words. Yeah, that's well, so true. Uh, would you like to add anything before I thank you. ask you unrelated questions to the subject? No, I'm good. What was the hardest lesson to learn about yourself? Ooh, what what challenged me in our talk right now? Well, I know that I can put words together in a pretty good way. Maybe um, just whether some of that's natural and some of that is from you know years and years of working on my craft. So. I, I know that I might have, um, you know, a little bit somewhere, some, some level of above average ability to do that. And, and I, and I better because, you know, that's, that's, that's what I, that's what I do. But, um, on the other hand, it's like, I, I think the thing, the hardest thing for me is like 
well, good, you're preaching a pretty good game there, but are you doing it in your own life? Um, mm. That kind of thing. Um, so that's really kind of the challenge for me is like, don't just talk a good game, but live a good game, you know? Yeah, thank you for your honesty and also for being humble. <laughs> yeah, because you're a very good writer. What is to be strong? Well, I hope that there's some strength in that, like kind of like what I just said. Like, just, just for example, I think laughing at yourself takes strength. Mm -hmm. I mean, I I see a lot of people who really have no sense of humor about themselves, mm -hmm. and I think you know, if I had to say whether they're a strong person or a weak, I, I in all honesty, I'd say well, I think they're a little bit kind of weak because they they they're like just too hung up on on how great they are or how tough they are or anything like that's actually not strength. Um, You know, we see it in politicians, you know, who talk about strong, strong, strong all the time. And really that they're, they're really what they're telling me is they're weak, weak, weak. Um, and I think that that's also a fluid thing. I think uh, I might be strong on certain things and weaker on others and or it could change during the course of days or, or you know, uh, it depends. I might be you might feel stronger and more well, 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 well. Uh, just well put together in your own thoughts and mind and body with, with one person and secure in that and stable yet chemistry with another person might, might invite a certain weaker part of you. I think it also depends on, on sometimes that with our interactions, for example, um, some people just get intimidated by doctors simply because they have that MD after their name. They feel mm -hmm. like, Oh my God, that person, knows much more than me. I just have to do whatever they say. I, I can't, I can't question them. I'm like, well, you know, we have, to, I think it helps people need to take a deep breath and get past that. You know, you can respect them for their knowledge and all of that, obviously. And they're, they're, ho they're hopefully they're there to help you, but you, you can't, um, let that intimidation factor come because then you're not showing them who you are. You need to show them who you are because then they're treating you. They're not just treating your chart, your medical chart. They're treating a human being. Um, and that's why I always try to help people do that, sometimes gently, and sometimes I need to be a little bit more forceful because people need, people need to be grabbed at that point and say, just, you know, you can assert yourself. It's a healthy thing. Um, you also It also helps you, you know, make your doctor accountable um, in that way, regard to, and be responsible for good communication. Um So, um, I think I steered a little bit away from that question, but no, it's great. Great. Thank you. How do you define success? Well, that's a multi-level thing. I'm, I mean, gee, that's so relative. Um, like it feels like a good successful day here talking to you about these things that are meaningful and hoping that the people who might listen to you and I will, will be able to take something that'll be helpful for them. Then I feel pretty nicely successful, um, time well spent. Um, and, uh, the emotional and, uh, real investment into that is, is, um, is really worthwhile. Um, so I feel like also when I am emotionally moved by the work that I'm doing, then there that's that's a success um yeah I, i think that when we can go to sleep at night without tossing and turning 
and without being without being anxious, that's really successful. Then that's really fortunate because there's so many reasons to uh, to to not be. There's so many reasons to be anxious about what's going on in the world, or let alone what's going on in our own personal lives. So I think when we're able to to find peace, that's that really is um, that really is a great success. Mm, wow. That's wonderful. Yeah, inner peace, right? Yeah, not to be not to be not to be uh, underrated. You know, it's like, geez, you know, I I I had inner. I mean, sure, no, I wouldn't mind to be, you know, like sitting on, sitting on my backyard right now in Malibu, looking at the Pacific Ocean. But if, <laughs> I, did, but if I was just restless and wasn't didn't have inner peace, like what the, what value is it? You know? So, uh, you know, now cramped in my little Manhattan apartment, but I feel at peace and I'm going, oh, I feel pretty successful. Um, yeah. <laughs> if you knew you would lose the body soon, what would you change? What change would you make in your life? Wow. Oh, gosh. Uh, I think that I would make want to make sure that there's a big list of people that I want to make sure they know how much they mean to me. And I think that that's something that I, I want to do better with um, without scaring anybody. <laughs> you know, like, why are you calling me? Are you dying? Or something? <laughs> like, I don't want to. <laughs> that's, that's, that's either just scary or, or it's hollow. You know, it's like, Oh, you're, just to like, oh, you want a check mark? You want to show you're a good person and telling, oh, no, I always loved you, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, like although it wouldn't be so bad, you know, like who would turn that down, you know? Um, and but in in the most authentic way that that can be, I, I, you know, that's 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 within reason. I think that that's actually something to to strive for. We 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 take so much for granted every day. I want to. I, I think that that's what I want to get to without making myself all stressed out. <laughs> you know, I want to try like like smoothly not take things for granted if I can do it in a way that's more relaxed. So I don't know. Maybe I just need to do more drugs and alcohol. I'm not really sure. <laughs> okay. Uh, no. 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 <laughs> uh, do you believe in life after death? I'm not sure if I believe I'm open to all those things. I, I actually did a project uh, recently with a woman who's, I think she's like in her early thirties. She lost her father some years ago, a few, not that long, like four years ago. And it was so shattering for her. I and mean, she kind of went out looking for him to try and find like through afterlife and mediums and all different kinds of things just to have some link to him. She just couldn't bear to that. He's gone. And mm -hmm. she had to find her own way through that. And by working on her book with her, I was exposed to a lot of those things that I normally don't think about too much. And I thought, wow, I could see myself being open to that. And I think that there is this, some form of cosmic energy out there. I don't know if it's literally, excuse me, falls into the category of afterlife or parallel life or or nothing ever really has a beginning, middle, and end. It's all just sort of this horizontal existence, you know, that's mm -hmm. all there on equal terms. I'm not sure, but mm -hmm. I'm open to it just because, uh, 
the other part where we're just like a deer and we're going to be like one day you're a deer and the next day you're roadkill. Um, that's a little depressing. So I try not to go there too much because <laughs> what that was that gets you, you know? Um, so somewhere between that and I'm open to it. I am open. I don't say that I just absolutely believe in it because I don't know what it is. So when you believe in something that you don't know what it is, then it's hard to say that you absolutely believe in it. Because then what are you actually believing in? I don't believe that I'm going to go and there's going to be like the gates of heaven and I'm going to go sit on a cloud um, and, and, you know, and, and, you know, and, and, and talk to Groucho Marx or something. Um, no. Um, or Gandhi, where I can finally go, ah, oh, Gandhi, I've been waiting all these years to meet. So tell me about that. Because, you know. <laughs> kind of evasive here in real life how is it working here in heaven um <laughs> i don't know i don't believe in that exactly um they would yeah. be not, that'd be fun fun yeah. so yeah fair enough not believing in um you don't have a belief uh, system not a not a finite one not a finite one And my last, last question. What sure. are three things about life you know for sure? Well, I would say you have a great voice for radio, for, for, for this medium. Um, so that's one thing I'm right in front of me. I know for that sure. for sure. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. Uh, what, do <laughs> about, what do I know about What do I know about for sure? Um, I know that it's worth putting good energy into because seeing, for example, from all the teaching I've done over the years, when I see kids light up with an idea or I see kids light up when they learn something that that's worth everything. When I have had in my time, in my life, the moments that I'm holding hands with someone that feels just right, that their hand just fits, then that is all everything. It's just mm -hmm. in that one little connection, you know? And uh, I think, yeah, there we go. I think I don't, I don't I lost count, but those, those two are, those, those, those are, those are good right there. Yeah. I love what he said. The last thing he said about the experience of human connection. Yeah. Like it's almost like music, right? The, it's just, there's harmony. Everything is just perfect. Exactly. Oh, totally, yeah. totally. There, there's music in all of those. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There's a personal, you know, in, inside soundtrack to all of them. And that comes back again to this inner peace. It does, does come back to that, feeling of contentment um and it could just be you know standing at the ocean or walking in the park or just walking down a very you know very uh, big busy street that you just feel centered and you feel you feel like this is where i belong right now um that sense um some sense of it's a sense of fullness um Or, or sometimes even when there's a sense of hunger, like I want to do more with this or I want to do more, I want to explore that curiosity. I think, I think when, without curiosity, um, I don't think kindness can really work without curiosity. I think we have to be curious about other people in order to be kind to them. 
uh, a certain degree. Yeah, I agree, because the opposite would be judgment. Judgment. You will just, you have your own ideas, concepts about others, and that will get in the way. Yeah, I mean, like, literally, like, we have to be curious about literal, specific things about a person. Like, well, you see an elderly person, you go, well, I'm not really curious about them, so I guess I'm not going to help them cross the street. No, of <laughs> course not. That's, that's kind of silly. But, you know, but because, but, but in a way, in helping them across the street, by the time you walk across the street with them and help them or guide them or just, you don't need to necessarily physically do anything, just accompany them, you know, so that they feel more secure, then um, uh, you, if you're not curious who they are by the time you get to the other side of the street, you might want to ask yourself, why not? You know, uh, so because there's something of value in everybody uh, or most, you know, um, I could, there's a few exceptions. <laughs> <laughs> um, it has been a meaningful conversation, David. Thank you so much for your presence. You have a lot of fun. <laughs> oh, good, good. Well, thanks. You too. I, I, you're very, very uh, provocative. Nice. Where can we find more information about you, your work, books, services, projects? Um, my, you, the people just come visit me. No, but that's not very practical. Uh, so I'll have to like 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 uh, I have to default to my website. Um, it's uh, tabatsky dot com. T a b a t s k y tabatsky dot com. Then there's a lot there uh, about different parts of my life and my work. Uh, all the books, um, some other things. Yeah. So hopefully, yeah, people can visit there and um, they can contact me if they want. That's all good. Great. Really great. Thank you so much again. And I'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Okay, okay, bye. Bye for now, David. Bye. bye. Thank you for listening. To learn more about David Tabatsky, please visit his website, tabatsky.com. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. I want to thank the Patreon members, Lawrence McGrath, Mark Basden, Terry Clayton, and Aidan Vickrock. Thank you again for listening, and bye for now.